the the key is especially people in medicine who are used to being type a personalities who get top of the class never get anything wrong think in a very black and white mindset and this binary right and wrong that it's okay to be in the gray and it's okay for your art or your creation to not end up looking good or useful it's that process that you're taking that is the cathartic part Hey, I'm Bond Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a podcast where I search for ways that we can design our lives to be healthier. I'm a physician, an educator, and a researcher. I explore how the worlds of design, art, science, and health intersect. In this episode, I'm joined by Mike Natter. Mike and I are really good friends. I first met him when he was a medical student in Philadelphia. Now Mike's an endocrinology fellow in New York City. He finished his last months of residency training treating patients with COVID-19 in New York City, which was the epicenter of the global pandemic. Mike has helped me to become a better storyteller. He's inspired me to find ways to apply my creativity in medicine, a field that does not really foster creative thinking. Mike uses the medium of comics, sketches, and drawings to share his journey and struggles of being a physician. And Mike's also a patient. He has type 1 diabetes. He tells candid stories about living with a chronic disease. So a goal I have in each episode is to share a takeaway from each guest, a pearl, a lesson, a piece of inspiration, something that we can apply to our own lives. I'm not an artist like Mike, but I have learned how therapeutic art can be in my own life. And I've discovered new ways that I can use art in my own career. So before we get into our conversation, I have a huge favor to ask please rate and review the podcast. Making this show is an iterative process. I really want it to become better. Thanks for listening and for your support. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mike Natter. Thanks for doing this, man. And- oh, fun. Come on. It's a pleasure. I'm honored. How's fellowship going? So fellowship's good. So I think I made the mistake of assuming it was going to be super chill. And these first couple of weeks were pretty brutal. But uh, it definitely leaps and bounds better than residency. That's for sure. You didn't have a break. I went from uh, a week and a half of nights at one of the hospitals doing a admitting resident and like running codes and rapids to literally becoming a fellow the next day. <laughs> I saw that. I was like, because you know, I, I, you know, I work nights and I like to follow your Insta stories at night when I'm on. I'm like, this dude's still working a lot. It's, yeah, it seems they really, they really kind of they really get every little last drip out of you. It's rough. No other city on the planet has been ravaged by COVID than than New York. So many New Yorkers died. What was that like for you to spend the last few months of your training in the epicenter of this pandemic? Oh, it was, it was hell. It was really bad. I was already very burnt out from residency, like ready to finish. Um, and I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. I saw that finish mm-hmm. line. I saw I had matched the fellowship. I was ready to get going and be done with these shifts and these, you know, really difficult experiences. And then COVID hit. So it was, it was really hard. I think it was really hard both emotionally, physically, but it, it just really kind of drained every last bit out of me. Mm-hmm. I will say though that I think that seeing the devastation that was happening 
a lot of my colleagues and my friends who are not in medicine, all they could do was stay at home. Mm-hmm. And I think that they felt like they wanted to help, they wanted to do something, and they couldn't find a way to do it like directly. So I had this real honor and privilege to actually have a skill set where I could directly potentially or at least attempt to help these people. Well, things are looking better there in New York. What are you looking for uh, during the summer? Now that I'm a fellow and have a little bit more free time and now that it's nice outside and now that it's kind of safer to go outside with people distancing and wearing masks, I'm just excited to be not in the hospital, sun on my face, getting something to eat or drink, sitting outside. I mean, that's all I could really ask for. But that being said, you know, a lot of the kind of mitigation that's being set in place is kind of being overlooked in some cases. Like I'm seeing a lot of, you know, young, young kids going to bars and like cramming into bars when they're not supposed to and stuff like that and not wearing their masks. And so that, that really does, does concern me quite a bit, but it is, it is kind of what I would call like a new normal I think it's similar to like 9-11 when, you know, I lived through 9-11, I'm born and raised a New Yorker and it's never been like it was pre-9-11 because now we have to take our shoes off when we go on the airplane and we have to, you know, this and that. Yeah. And, and you adapt and you kind of, that becomes your normal and you almost forget what it was like before. You know, you could just walk onto a plane or whatever it may be. And I think that COVID will kind of give us this new normal where we're going to be a little bit more cognizant of infection control and of public health. At least I hope so. New Yorkers are so resilient. I, I, I see, I see y'all coming back quick, quickly. I love your Instagram. What's the latest art or comic that you've been working on? During COVID, I was putting out a lot of like really heavy stuff, partially because I was just like pretty depressed and like dealing with it in, in my in my way, which is art, like catharsis through my art. And now I'm feeling like I'm trying to be a little bit more kitschy to bring my mood up a little bit. So I just recently put out one last night. I had this idea when I went to go pick up some delivery in my lobby, I forgot my mask. So I took my t-shirt and I put it over my, my mouth and nose <laughs> from like, from like my, my collar up. And I was like, oh, that's, that's pretty funny. And I was like, I wonder if I could make a comic about like the variations, like the spectrum of variation of mask wearing. So I put out this comic and you have like the standard, which is like the surgical mask. And then you have like the boss where you have like the Bane mask, the respirator. And then you have the people that forget their mask like me and you put the shirt up at like, you know, a quick run. And then you have the people that like have it under their chin. And then you have the, you know, the douchebag who just won't wear a mask, you know. I, I saw that. I, I really, really liked that. I, I had a dream about being in public and not wearing a mask. I thought this is a 2020 version of the dream of when you're out in public and you realize you have no pants on. Like That's I had exactly. that same exact feeling. I'm like, like, crap, I have no mask on. I was like, stressed out and, and embarrassed. <laughs> it's so true. People seem like they're wearing masks uh, a lot, though, in, in New York. They are. And- I like to play this little game when I do go out. Um, when I'm walking down the block, I count how many people aren't and how many people are, and I kind of get an idea of, like, block-by-block block ratio. And it's, like, pretty much 90% of people are wearing masks. Wow. So, it's still you're still taking caution. But it's just a different – in New York, at least, it's a totally different vibe now. Like, I would go to work scared every day. I was just – yeah. And, you know, I was very cautious and washing my hands and everything else. And so I still take those precautions, but it's more kind of almost routine in terms of just like it's something that's kind of become this weird new normal. I remember I went to during the peak of all this um, when I was like really scared before 
there was this kind of mandate and understanding that everyone should be wearing masks. Mm -hmm. I went to CVS on a quick run to pick up some stuff. And like, you know, that's when it felt like you were going into like war when you'd run outside to get your, you know, supplies. Dude, I, I totally feel the same. I actually feel more uncomfortable going into like a CVS or yes, a grocery store than, the, than hospital. the hospital. Totally. No, totally. And in, in, I guess, whenever it was March or whenever it was February, and I'm walking back and I saw on the street, there was no one wearing a mask except there was one person wearing a mask. And mm. I thought to myself, the interesting social psychology that takes place you know, if you compare it to places like certain places in Asia where it's like kind of cultural to wear a mask regardless mm -hmm. of if you're sick or not sick or symptomatic or not. And in, in New York, before everyone was wearing masks, you see this one person wearing a mask and they're the sick person you want to stay away from. They're the leper. Totally. And then by this cultural shift where everyone's wearing a mask that becomes normal and it's not stigmatized, it makes a total big difference. Are they thinking, because he's an Asian dude, is that why he's wearing a mask? I still think that. Is that kind of yeah. messed up? No, it's sad. I mean, there was this horrible like anti-Asian sentiment during the beginning of, and like mm -hmm. a lot of this like mask wearing, politicizing and like this Asian backlash is because of like the horrible leadership that we have from the top, you know, like calling it the, you know, China virus and all this oh, stuff. And, all, and all the time. These kinds of sentiments. There's a, a great piece that my uh, one of my colleagues did. He's currently in attending, but he went to residency with me. He's still at the same institution. He's an Asian American guy, and he he did this beautiful piece, kind of documenting being a doctor in New York City, both like in public, but also in the hospital. And, and, mm. and he would film kind of the responses that people would would do, and he was getting, you know, yelled at and spit on and just terrible. What? I had such high hopes in the beginning of this pandemic, thinking. This is a horrible, horrible time in our in our country, in our in our world. But maybe the silver lining is that we'll all realize how vulnerable and how we're all just human beings and we'll kind mm -hmm. of come together, you know? Yeah. And I was really hopeful that that was going to be the case. And now we're just going to get more and more divided now. And it's a lot, I think, secondary to, you know, poor leadership. You seem like you used Instagram as this like platform for storytelling around the pandemic and you've had some really beautiful pieces in, in there your instagram is at mike.natter and it's not like some instagrams you know you have just people doing selfies all, all the time but you're telling the story through through the pandemic and i love the one that you did of healthcare workers in their ppe how do you have time to do that i really appreciate that coming from you someone who i look up to and was essentially my mentor through med school and beyond um, I really appreciate that. I I feel really blessed and honored that like through some strange organic twist of fate, I've developed this platform. And I think with a platform like that, especially being in medicine, I think there comes responsibility. And I just never really want to be the guy who takes my platform and it's just like taking selfies and scrubs the whole time. I don't mm -hmm. I don't want that to be my message. So I, I really hope that there's this sense of um, you know, I should be doing something good and I can maybe, you know, put out a message that's positive and helpful and, and cathartic to, to others and hopefully a little funny and cheeky too. But the time has always been um, difficult. So I, I learned <laughs> quickly in medical school that when you decide to take a career and or training in medicine, you're not a normal person where a normal person kind of goes to work and then they have like happy hour and dinner and gym time and television <laughs> and then they go to bed. You kind of have to choose one. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's all you got. So, you know, a lot of my colleagues need to go to the gym or a lot of my colleagues like to cook. And that's cool. I need to draw. So, I'll carve out some time to draw. And 
sometimes it, it's the other way around. It's not that I, I want to draw. It's that I need to draw because I had such a horrible shift or because I'm going through something really tough or because I learned something really cool and I want to share it and like crystallize it for myself, but also for others. How is that act of drawing cathartic or therapeutic for you? At the end of the day, like art's kind of like a communication and, and it's communication almost like the most simple and basic form. You don't need a vocabulary. You don't need to know how to read or write to understand or have a response or emotionally connect to art. Mm. And oftentimes what we go through in the hospital, and I say we because I know that you experience it as well, especially in the ED, it's, it's this kind of inexplicable really amazing and really horrifying and really emotional experience that I don't think can be relayed in very many ways. And I am fortunate that I have this kind of language to um, relay it. The inarticulate feelings I'm having, I can kind of put to paper in some Mm. respect. And it helps me unload those feelings that I can't put words to. And then the beauty of it is I put that out there and I find sometimes, or when when it's good and when it resonates, I'll get responses that people really appreciate and also feel those feelings and makes them feel less alone in those feelings. You seem to capture some of the fear and anxiety that a lot of doctors are going through what, what I've been experiencing. And I, and I just love that you put that out there because I go, yeah, I, I know exactly how you're feeling. That's how I'm feeling. It's really, really brave that you put that out there because in in medicine, it's looked at a sign of weakness that we are vulnerable with our feelings. And you're talking about your anxiety, your frustrations, how just scary this time has been. Have there been any negative repercussions from that or criticisms for you being so vulnerable on a public platform? I I would say Overwhelmingly, it's all been positive. That being said, you know, some of my comics and some of my messages and some of my illustrations do dance on, you know, I feel very strongly about certain things. And while I wouldn't necessarily call them political stances, a lot of what's going on in our world and our society and our culture right now, people have politicized. And so there are Mm -hmm. definitely people who have responded in the negative for sure. My favorite of which (laughs) I did a... um, during the Black Lives Matter movement, which I think is still very much strong and going on, but during the kind of the rallies and the protests that were happening in the streets of New York a couple of weeks ago, I, I came out in support, obviously, of what was happening. And I, I very much support all of that. And I was always a little bit annoyed when I would see people respond in my in my comments with, oh, but all lives matter, all lives matter. Yeah. You know? And it, it was interesting to me how the message was so lost on these people. And a lot of these people were intelligent, you know, people in medicine mm-hmm. and it, and people that I was friendly with. And so I was mm. confused by how they couldn't see how by saying all, you know, black lives matter. It's not, you know, saying the rest of the lives don't, it's that these people are currently ill. And I thought about and not ill, but currently in need. And I thought about it in terms of triage and medicine, you know, and as a resident at the time, when I was in the ICU, if there was a crashing patient, you know, I would run to take care of that crashing patient. That ill patient needed our attention in that moment. And I thought about it in terms of, well, if there was other patients on the unit that were stable, like I'm not going to run over there first or acknowledge them at that moment. So I made a comic kind of to that point, making that analogy of why saying Black Lives Matter is expressing the triage, yeah. the need to help people in need right now. And in response to that, I got, again, an overwhelming positive response 
And then there was a handful of very vocal negative responses. And my favorite of my... You, you, had, you had some trolls out there. Some trolls. And someone slid right into my DMs saying <laughs> they somehow took what I drew as... They interpreted it as me saying that I will only treat black and brown lives. I will only help patients of minority descent. And they told me in all caps that they were going to contact my hospital to tell them how horrible of a doctor I was. Oh, my and gosh. I, I initially just found that just so humorous. I was just like, clearly, not only did you miss the message, but you are going to take it to a level that is so obscene and unnecessary. But you, every now and again, you, you do get those responses. And I think, unfortunately, you know, good art means that if you haven't offended or upset someone, then you haven't made enough art yet. You know, like, you're going to stir some feathers. I, I wanted to go back to how art has been therapeutic to you. This has been such a stressful time for all of us in this country, and we're trying to find ways to deal, to work on our mental health. And, and for you, that, that's art and creating. For folks listening out there who are looking for that um, release or that mental health break, what, what would be some of your suggestions? Yeah, I think all of us are creative naturally. Like There is a, a very organic urge to create in all of us. And you are extremely creative in, in how you put yourself together, by what you wear, by what you do in the ED, by your decisions on how to treat, by your cooking. Everything that you do is, is a very creative process. You, I think, more so than other people. But I think we all have that drive. And I think what happens is, or rather, unfortunately, what happens is society and culture kind of, you know, burns it out of us. So when we're kids, I'm pretty sure all of us were coloring and coloring books and finger painting and, you know, molding clay. It was, it was such a natural thing. And then a handful of things happen, whether it be societal pressures or, you know, less value on the arts, more values on, you know, math, science and so on. Or this kind of uh, recognition of like the ego, super ego, where you realize that what you drew for your mom, who says it's beautiful and puts on the fridge is actually kind of crap. And then you become aware that it's crap and then you become self-conscious of that. I don't know. There's a handful of, of theories I have. But my point is that it's very natural for us to want to create and be creative. And so I think the, the key is, especially people in medicine who are used to being type A personalities who get top of the class, never get anything wrong, think in a very black and white mindset in this binary right and wrong, that it's okay to be in the gray and it's okay for your art or your creation to not end up looking good or useful. Mm -hmm. It's that process that you're taking that is the cathartic part. You get into a flow state of mind that actually allows you to what they call unstring the bow. If your bow is taut all the time, it's going to get, you know, it's going to start to warp and you have to unstring it and then restring it back up to do what you need to do. So, you know, during the pandemic, it seems like a lot of people were baking bread, but, you know, totally, things, yeah. things like that, things that you wouldn't normally do with yourself, it's good to challenge and try. So dancing, if you like to dance, if you like to move, working out, I think is very beneficial. But creating art, I think people have this hesitation because there's a final product that they have to somehow show. But I would, I would, um, I would say go for it. I think there's a lot of interesting like figure drawing classes now on Zoom that are kind of mm. fun, which is great because you don't have to share your work. And then there's things even within figure drawing and within art called blind contour drawing where the whole purpose is to learn how to see and, and observe. And so 
if the point is that you don't lift your pen or pencil and you don't look down at what you're drawing during the entire time you're drawing it so that when you finish, it looks pretty bad, but everyone's yeah. does and it's kind of meant to. So just uh, kind of love that. those two things is, is a good way to go. Did you feel like you were like this artist trapped in a, in a, in a body of a medical student and doctor? I, I think you're hitting the irony like so perfectly because medicine is so inherently gray and ambiguous and there is inherently so much art in medicine because there there are guidelines there are you know empirical studies but if you look at all the data every 5 or 10 years the recommendations just change and go back and forth and everything is so in flux and as someone growing up in a family that just revered doctors and medicine and there's no medicine in my family. And so there was this kind of... You, you do not come from a family of doctors. No, 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 not, not at all. There's no medicine, no, no nursing, no medicine, no doctors, no nothing. But we kind of had this false sense of medicine and technology has gotten to the point where doctors knew everything. You mm -hmm. went in, you got that weird scan. It told you 100% what you had. You knew exactly what you needed to treat. Like it, we thought that. And then in going to medical school... I think it became more and more apparent, and then especially through residency, how really great things were. But to your point of like this kind of weird, I, I still struggle with my imposter syndrome, but this point of that medicine is very much old school, conservative, traditional, and there is this kind of sense of, you know, you know, the old white guy with white hair and a bow tie who just knows all the answers and has memorized Harrison's and all this stuff. Totally. Dr. House. Exactly. Exactly. And this like brow beating. So I, I, I make the joke that like when I'm around my art friends from, from undergrad, like I, I much more identify as a doctor. And then when I'm around my medicine friends, I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm an artist. You know, like I have this <laughs> kind of weird imposter syndrome. But I, I think my, my going in with such hesitancy and, and imposter syndrome of being more of an artist than, than my colleagues who are more scientists and medicine people secretly was my strength. And I didn't realize that really until midway through medical school. Hmm. And it's so great to connect with people like you and go to medical school at a place like Jefferson, because I think unlike other traditional places that are, you know, wrought with all of this, you know, traditional teaching, Jefferson was very quick to recognize that there is so much benefit and creativity that needs to be more overtly applied to medicine and medical education and things like what you're doing is so tangibly showing that I think we're already seeing the benefits of it. So having that flexibility and that creative mind, I think allows you to be more comfortable in that ambiguity that is medicine. It's not, you know, the multiple choice test with one correct answer. It's never that way. To totally. I, I love the blending of the artistic mindset with the scientific mindset. I think there's a lot of power there when you can merge those two worlds and blend them. They're not inherently like oil and water you can benefit from having both of those mindsets it can make you a, a better physician you identify yourself as a physician as an artist but also as a patient because you have type 1 diabetes does that help to see yourself in the patients that you treat by having a chronic disease Absolutely. For me, for sure. I think most physicians that have chronic disease go two very different ways. Uh, I know a lot of type 1 diabetics in medicine, and the idea of going into endocrinology for them is blasphemy. They're like, listen, I do enough diabetes every day on my own. The last thing I want to do is do it for everyone else. And I think that's totally valid and very fair. For me, I really love people, and I love connecting with my patients. 
And I think when you're dealing with things like chronic illness, especially when it takes such a personal investment on the patient's part to really be a partner with the physician to get, get that final goal together, I think it's important to be able to look them in the eye and say, this sucks. And like, I know it sucks because I also do it. And I think that helps a lot. Now, I don't think that means you have to have or share the disease with the patient. I don't think that's necessary by any means. But anytime you can really see the perspective of someone else when you're sitting on the other side of that desk or the bed, it's, I think it's that much more helpful. And I've seen these really beautiful moments when, you know, even just yesterday, young guy in DK and the ED I went down to talk to, kind of newly diagnosed, and you see this kind of denial and resentment about this diagnosis and this kind of sense of feeling like, oh, here's another guy in a white coat telling me what I can and can't eat, how I have to take my sugar and prick myself and take shots. What does he know? Like, you know, and I think especially when you, once you're an adult and you get diagnosed with these things, it's harder because you've already developed your autonomy, your way of life, what you like and don't like. And then you have some other adult telling you that you can't. And in some cases, I'm much younger than some of these patients. I'm telling them what you can't and can't do. Mm-hmm. I was diagnosed at, at nine. And when you're nine, you wear what you're told. You eat what you're told. You go to school when you're told. You do your homework. So I was doing all that. And then I was told I have to take my shots. and I have to take my sugar. And it was an easier transition for me. So with this guy in the ED yesterday, this tangible dynamic was palpably shifted when I showed him my pump. I said, listen... I get it. You just yeah. like lifted up your shirt? Yeah. Well, so my pump kind of looks like everyone thinks it's just a pager because it like hangs out on my uh, my waistband there. But uh-huh. um, sometimes people pick it up. But I don't always share that with my patients. Sometimes yeah. I don't feel like it, I need to or I don't feel like it'll benefit them. And if it feels like it would benefit them, then I'm happy to share that with them. And what was it like when you showed him your insulin pump? You just feel the dyna- dynamic shift. You, you, you see their eyes kind of soften. They're no longer feeling kind of resentment toward you. They're like, oh, like he does get this because he actually does this. And like those are the special moments for me. I love that connection with people that is deeper than me just prescribing them things or telling them what they can and can't do. And so I, I think that's really what draws me to medicine is connecting to these patients and helping them. That, that's awesome because a lot of times we're not encouraged to show our vulnerability to, to our patients, but sometimes that's what patients need and that will actually help the patient to build that level of trust it really has helped you have the superpower of empathy by having a chronic disease understanding what is that experience of the patient patients are the experts of their their own disease and they have insight into their disease in in deeper ways than the physician has and i think we need to honor that. We as doctors can learn from from our patients. I think that's really beautifully said. I, I really like that. Like we, we, we study these textbooks and we think we know better, but you're right, you ask the patient. And even if they come in with like an acute illness, you know, there's data that suggests like upwards of 80% of the time the diagnosis is obtained just from the history, just from the patient telling you their story, you can figure it out. It's so good to catch up with you, man. Thanks for doing this. Bon, it's, it's an actual privilege and an honor and a, and a pleasure. I love you. I miss you. Um, let's, let's hang out as soon as we can with masks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Mike Natter. Mike inspires so many young doctors, medical students, and people living with chronic diseases like type 1 diabetes. Joining me now is my buddy, Rob Puglisi. He is the producer of Design Lab. 
Robin and I like to debrief about what we've learned from our guests. What's up, Rob? Hey. What do you take away from our conversation, man? So I got to say, I really love Mike and that message of him allowing himself to be vulnerable and actually like talk about his own struggles with diabetes, it really resonates with me because um, I also have insulin-dependent diabetes. Yeah, and both, and I've bo- been, both of you all have an insulin pump. That's right. I do. Yep. Yep. I've had an insulin pump for a number of years. And I've been in similar situations where I was able to use my own experiences to connect better with my patients. I think being a patient and also being an artist helps Mike to become more empathetic. And art for Mike, it's it's not only his passion, but it's his release valve. Even though he's one of the busiest people I know, he acknowledges this need to make time for that release valve. And I believe by doing that helps him to preserve his own humanity. Yeah. The one message that Mike had about how he's so busy, but that he has to do art, like that really struck something to me because, you know, we're all busy and that made me realize there's that one thing that might make you happy and to make time for that every day, no what, matter what's what What's that one is. thing for you, man? So I'll be honest. One of my favorite things to do is to watch uh, anime and to watch cartoons. I wait, love... wait, anime? That It's those Japanese cartoons? Yeah, and it, like, I got to say, it's gotten a lot worse with the pandemic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've always loved cartoons. I used to go to cartoon festivals and award shows, and I, I follow it really closely. But for me, it gives me something that nothing else does. And I feel better when I'm able to have that experience. We got to do a whole pod on that. That's amazing. I guess for me, <laughs> it's working out. I got to do that every day. It's it's great for my mental health. It's that release valve for me. And especially during this time of the pandemic, it's important for each one of us to find out what is that release valve in our lives and to make sure we make time for that because it's going to help preserve our humanity. Yeah, it's so important. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Design Lab. Please subscribe, rate, and give feedback to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. This really helps us to improve. I'm your host, Bon Koo. Rob Pugliese produced this episode, and our theme music was created by the amazing Emmanuel Houston. See you next week.